Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 13. Psalm 13, hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Two weeks ago, we we heard about the problems of violence and oppression in Psalm 11. And then last week, we heard about the the problems of the tongue and of lies and flattery in Psalm 12. When the foundations are destroyed, the righteous must not run for the hills. Rather, the psalmist says, run to the temple. Worship the Lord and do what is right. When the rich and powerful use words to destroy others, The righteous must listen to the pure and holy words of God, trusting that God will keep his word and guard us from this generation forever. Psalms 11 and 12 both have the confidence that God will listen. He hears. God makes things right. Psalm 13 starts with a question that seems to challenge the assumptions of Psalms 11 and 12. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I thought you were confident that God's the one who hears, that God's the one who answers. Wait, and now you're saying, God, how long will you forget me forever? Now, let's be clear up front. Remembering and forgetting is not merely an intellectual thing here. God does not have a faulty memory. He's not like, oh, 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 that's right, I forgot, that person's over. No, that's not the sort of forgetting that David's talking about here. Remembering and forgetting is all about words and actions. Easy one here. Have any of you ever intellectually forgotten your anniversary? When anybody, August 1st, I know that. Does that mean that your words and actions, my words and actions on August 1st, are always first thing in the morning, I remember, ah, this is our anniversary. Remembering and forgetting are not about an intellectual thing. Remembering and forgetting are about words and actions. In, In Deuteronomy, Moses repeatedly tells Israel, remember the Lord your God. I mean, okay, really, seriously, Have any of you ever literally forgotten that God exists? Probably not. But remembering God is not the same thing as intellectually sort of, oh yeah, I I remember he exists, of course. And in the same way, in Exodus 2, we are told that after 400 years... God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
That doesn't mean that for 400 years God had forgotten. Oh, and then it's like, oh, oh, right. There's that people over in Egypt. I should probably do something about that now. No. When it says that God remembers, it means, and God did something. So when we ask, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? The question is not, does God remember that I exist? Well, it can feel like that one too. The question is, when will you speak? When will you act? Because when God forgets, what that means is, he is silent. I am grateful for songs like Psalm 13. Psalm 13 teaches us that it is okay to say, God has forgotten me. It's okay to ask God, are you going to forget me forever? How do I know it's okay to say that? Because God inspired David to say it, to put it down in his word, and to teach you to sing that. So yes, our God is a God who encourages these questions. It's worth noting that in the book of Revelation, when the souls under the altar are talking, what are the souls under the altar doing? They're asking the question, how long, O Lord, holy and true? Are these people, I mean, okay, anybody in human history prior, you know, prior, to, prior to death besides our Lord Jesus Christ is a sinner. Therefore, you, one could say, oh, maybe they're sinful. The souls under the altar have been purified of all sin. These are holy people, holy souls before the altar. And they're still asking God, how long? If, if the holy souls under the altar can ask how long, surely it is a holy question for us to ask God, how long will you be silent? Acts chapter 4, hear now the word of the Lord. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. 
But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. In Acts 4, the believers are facing foes who would silence them. The apostles have been charged by the priests not to speak in the name of Jesus. And so they gather together with the rest of the believers and they pray, trusting that God will continue to do what he has promised. And and they turn to Psalm 2, remembering what God had promised David. Why did the nations rage, the Gentiles and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. As we saw earlier, Psalm 2 sets the stage for book 1 of the Psalter. The son of David sits on the throne and Here in the book of Acts, the apostles see clearly, this is what Jesus has done. He is sitting on the throne. This is what Psalm 2 promised is now coming, has come in Jesus. And they interpret Psalm 2 to refer to what God did in Jesus in this city. They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is all part of God's plan. God is at work. We see this. God is never surprised by the machinations of the wicked. He does work all things together for good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. You might be saying, okay, but this sounds like the exact opposite of Psalm 13. How long? And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That was quick. And yet, in another sense, Acts 4 is exactly like Psalm 13. Okay, there's an earthquake, but how many might be tempted to say, well, was was that a coincidence? What has changed in the circumstances of the apostles? 
nothing. Their external situation is exactly the same. Their enemies are still implacably opposed to them. The priests and elders in Jerusalem have threatened them. They know if they continue down this path, what happened to the last guy? They crucified him. What's going to happen to us? Well, our master told us, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. (laughs) Okay, yeah, they're in the same place as Psalm 13. The one thing that has changed for the apostles is simply this. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The last verse of Psalm 13. The last verse of Psalm 13 is where the apostles are camping out. They trust in the Lord's steadfast love. Their hearts rejoice in God's salvation. They sing to the Lord, even in the same song as, How long will you forget me forever? Because Psalm 13 teaches us how to sing when God forgets. Psalm 13 asks, with this opening question, How long? How long will God forget me? How long will God hide his face from me? How long must I sit here alone without you? How long will my enemies win? And where is God? God says, he will be our God. We will be his people. Think about David. This is a psalm of David. God had promised David that he would establish David's throne forever. But there were times when David felt that God had abandoned him. And you know how that feels. We've all experienced the problem of divine silence. Just listen to the language here. Will you forget me forever? I feel forgotten, unnoticed, unappreciated. No one remembers me. How long will you hide your face from me? He won't even look at me. No one notices me. I'm invisible. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? I am curved in upon myself, looking inwards. No one to talk to. No one listens. No one understands me. I know I'm describing the present experience of some of you and the experience at one time or another of all of you. And for many of you, this sort of darkness is a a frequent and unwelcome guest. But Psalm 13 invites you to insert your experience into this song. You can say, this is me. I am sad and depressed. I do not feel the presence of God. He seems distant and silent. Now the last how long is perhaps the hardest for us to connect to, but it's the most important for understanding our situation. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? In our modern enlightened society, we don't like talking about enemies. But the only reason why there is still sadness and depression in the world is because of our enemies. Why am I sad and alone and afraid? Because my enemies are winning. I do not yet see everything in subjection to Jesus. 
Yes, Jesus has ascended into heaven and been seated at the right hand of God. There is now a son of David, a son of Adam, one who bears our nature, who reigns over all things and has begun to make all things right. But I am depressed, I am sorrowful, because in my life, my enemy is winning. I'm not presently experiencing the triumph of Jesus. Paul, in Ephesians 6, speaks of our spiritual warfare against the principalities and powers, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When you hear the language of enemy, the enemies here are not flesh and blood. The enemies are the principalities and powers. The enemies are, are sin, the flesh, the devil. Jesus has triumphed over the powers through his resurrection. But while the definitive battle has been won, the war's not over. Think about David's own experience in this. David went up against Goliath. And once Goliath was dead, did that mean the battle was over? No. The definitive part of the battle was over. Goliath has fallen. But now all Israel comes into the battle and joins in the pursuit and plunder of the Philistines. The analogy works. Jesus has won the great battle. He is the David who slew Goliath. But that doesn't mean that the war is over. Our spiritual warfare is now continuing on in doing battle against the defeated foe. And sometimes in this present evil age, it feels like the enemy is winning. It feels like the world is falling apart. The foundations are being destroyed. Psalm 11. Sin and death sometimes seem too powerful. And I don't have the strength to fight. This is why the final how long in verse 2 is so important for us. Yes, my foes have already been defeated in the resurrection of Jesus. So how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? If you think about it, the very form of the question is a confession of faith. How long? Until when? I know there's an end date on this. I know that there is an end to this question. There is an end to this story. And it's a good end. Maybe you're experiencing depression right now. Maybe you're trying to help somebody who's in the midst of depression. Psalm 13 reminds us that it's okay to be depressed. Careful distinction here. Not saying that it's a good thing and that everybody should want to be depressed. That's not what I'm saying. But it's also, it's not a sin to be depressed. So just, it's okay to be there. Psalm 13 starts there. (laughs) Psalm 88 ends there. There are good reasons for our sadness and our sorrow. When your mother dies, when you lose a baby, when your best friend moves away, when you wonder, what am I doing here? Bad stuff happens. And yes, sometimes in the midst of the bad stuff, God's presence shines through and you find joy in the midst of suffering. Other times in the midst of bad stuff, God just seems absent, silent, as though he's forgotten you. And sometimes the ordinary sorrows and sadnesses can deepen into depression where you are sunk in the depths of despair. 
And it's okay to say so. We seem to have created the church culture in America where everyone needs to be happy. And I think sometimes that's been a result of our church music. If the music is always happy, that communicates the idea that the Christian life is all about being happy. But Jesus and his apostles are very clear that the only route to glory, the only way to attain the joy and happiness of the resurrection, is the way of the cross, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And that's why the Psalms have always been so important in Christian worship. There are Psalms of joy, and there are Psalms of lament. And most commonly, you find a blending of both, like Psalm 13, where it it starts off in the depths of depression, and yet it ends with a confident joy in the Lord. So the first thing we need to see from Psalm 13 is that it's okay to ask God, how long? How long will you forget me? How long will you be silent? And, And Psalm 13 doesn't explain why God is silent. Why not? Because Psalm 13 is opening the door to you and saying, fill in the blanks. There can be a lot of reasons why God is silent. Our our confession has a, a really good answer to this question, why is God silent? It says, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts. And they give reasons. One, to to chastise them for their former sins. Second, to discover unto them, to reveal to them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled. And then to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin. And then my favorite, and for sundry other just and holy ends. Yeah, I mean, sometimes God is silent in order to rebuke you for your sin. Yes. But other times, God is silent in simply in order to show you how much you need him. Maybe God just wants you to learn how much you should hate sin. Maybe God wants you to learn the deceitfulness of your own heart. Why has he brought this trial and then seemingly disappeared? And that's where their, their, last, their last line is so important, and for sundry other just and holy ends. If you've ever felt like the Westminster Confession tries to answer all the questions, and no, actually, the Westminster Confession was never designed to answer all the questions. It was designed to show us a path of, here's the path we walk on as we're dealing with all these questions. Because their last line says, often, I have no idea why God is silent. And that's okay too. Because our God is holy. He is just. He is merciful. He is humble. And so he has a reason for it, which we may or may not come to know in our lifetime. But he's asking you, will you trust me? Will you trust me in the middle of your uncertainty? Because... As we turn to verses 3 and 4, we can see that the psalmist would concur with the situation. Because while David may be hurting, depressed, and alone, he knows that he has nowhere else to turn. 
Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. What is the result of divine silence? Death. If God remains silent, then I die. I sleep the sleep of death. Ed Welch has a great book on depression, a stubborn darkness. And these are some quotes from several authors here on people that he talked to. I feel as though I died a few weeks ago and my body hasn't found out yet. Depression involves a complete absence, absence of affect, absence of feeling, absence of response, absence of interest. The pain you feel is an attempt on nature's part to fill up the empty space. The deeply depressed are simply the walking, waking dead. The only certainty is that misery will persist. You doubt that you are loved by anyone. The only thing you know is that you are guilty, shameful, and worthless. It is not that you have made mistakes in your life or sinned or reaped futility. It's that you are a mistake. You are sin. You are futility. That's the language of the depths of despair and depression. That's the bottom of the pit. How could anyone love me if they knew the wickedness of my heart? This is, this is where we wind up if God remains silent. And that's why the psalmist pleads with God, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. So let's be clear. It's okay to be depressed. But you need to bring your depression to Jesus. There's no other place to go. You need to come to God and say, Help! It's To be depressed and to just stay there is not a good thing. But to bring it to Jesus and say, Help! I need you. If you don't say something, Lord, if you don't answer me, I will die. Now, medication can be a very useful thing in treating the symptoms of depression. Medication can help stabilize and balance the situation. But the root problems can only be dealt with with the medicine of grace. I've, I've heard doctors talk about patients who come seeking medication for depression. And, and as they ask questions, seeking the reasons, uh, over and over again, isolation, loneliness, broken families, distance. Do you have any friends? Yeah, yeah I, I got a friend in New York. Uh, medication can make a person feel a little better and that can be really helpful for helping them get out of the rut that they're stuck in. But in the end, only the grace of God can bring life to the dead. David Pallison tells the story of he worked in the, in the medical, uh, medical health field, mental health field for, for years before he was a Christian. And he tells the story of a young woman who slashed herself with a broken bottle. And he says that as we dressed her wounds and, and sought to calm her, she wailed inconsolably, who will love me? Who, who could love me? And yeah, medication could, could quiet her down. But he says, her anguish and guilt made the psychologies I believed seem like thin gruel. Her distraught cry was realistic and heartrending. Nothing I knew could really answer her. Not her psychiatrist, medication, parents, job, boyfriend, peers. We could manage her, sort of. But 
Neither our theories nor techniques could really touch what ailed her. I now see that her cry of desolation could only find an answer in the mercy and hope of Jesus. If we're honest with ourselves, what's the difference between that woman in his story and ourselves? We may cover our fears, hatreds, desires, and anxieties with a thin veneer of civility, but we're the same. We need God to fix this. The normal reaction to trouble and suffering is to turn inward, like verses 1 and 2, to shut down and shut others out. But verse 3 sees the shift in direction. Consider and answer, O Lord my God. I need you to do something or else I will die. When you are in the dark night of the soul, cry out to God. Ask Him, beg Him, plead with Him to do something, say something. Notice how the psalmist blends together the theme of the word, answer me, and the theme of light. Light up my eyes. In a world of silence and darkness, I need God to speak and to shine. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Word and light, speaking and shining in the darkness. And this confidence becomes stronger and brighter in verses 5 and 6, as the psalmist reflects on God's promises. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. We saw last time that the Hasid, the faithful one who demonstrates steadfast love, is gone. The trustworthy have vanished from among the sons of Adam. Where can you find chesed? Where can you find steadfast love? Where can you find loyalty? Where can you find someone who will do what they have promised? David says to God, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My confidence is that God himself is the one who does what he promises. He is faithful. When God makes a promise, he will do it. And so even though David is still in the midst of his darkness, in the midst of his sorrow, he says that he will rejoice in God's salvation. Where is the faithful one? The sons of Adam are too fickle. The faithful one is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. God told Abraham he would bless all nations through his seed. When that promise got written down in the book of Genesis... Israel was an itty-bitty little country with pretty much zero influence in world history. And what has happened? As I stand before you this day, throughout the last, what is it now, 17 hours, the gospel has been preached across this whole globe in every time zone, all across the entire face of the earth. The promises to Abraham have come to pass. Not finished yet, not by a long shot. But it's happening. The gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. Jesus told us the gates of hell would never prevail against his church. When that promise got written down in the gospel of Matthew, the Christian church was minuscule, persecuted, few tens of thousands of adherents. Oh, and by the way, those adherents were divided by all sorts of schisms and heresies, false teachers running off with a few hundred here, a thousand there. You read the New Testament and you're like, 
This is, I mean, never think of the apostolic age as, ah, the glory, this was the golden age, everything was going just the way it should. No, the apostles were constantly dealing with, this is not working. And yet, their confidence was, this is what Jesus is doing, so he will continue his church. The gates of hell will not prevail. I mean, even in our own generation, when I moved to South Bend 25 years ago, there were still six or seven PCUSA churches. Not much gospel preaching left there. Most of those have now closed down, and a couple of them are um, living off endowments is all they got left. So, as we've been talking about starting a new Presbyterian in in northern Indiana, I've been looking back at the history of Presbyterianism in this region. Oh, there there were five Presbyterians across this region once. But all of that has dwindled down to one, if you just follow one denomination's timeline. And if you know anything about the PCUSA, you know that's been a downward spiral. In those same 25 years, when you look at what's happened, I mean, sure, back then, I mean, back then, Michiana Covenant was the only Reformed preaching church in South Bend and St. Joe County. There are now six or seven re- sort of Reformed gospel preaching churches in this county. So, in the same, in the, at the, as we've watched the nosedive of one Presbyterian denomination away from the gospel, People are still hearing the good news of Jesus, believing his promises, and this is you know, the gospel continues to go forth. And, oh, are we a mess? Yeah. When you look at me, this, this is what just amazes me about the history of the Christian church, because when has the Christian church not been a mess? And yet the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ continues to go forth. Here we are 2,000 years later. We're on the other side of the planet. And it's still the case that no one has been able to better articulate the plight of the human race and the solution needed in order to be saved than the Lord Jesus Christ and his prophets and apostles. Everything else is just coping mechanisms. And so I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. What happened in between verse 1 and verse 6? My enemies are still winning. It feels like God has forgotten me. And now I'm singing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. What changed? My heart. I'm, I mean, I may still be depressed in a technical sense. You see, when you're depressed, that doesn't mean you can't praise God. You can still sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with you. And yes, it doesn't feel very much like it. But you can still sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with you. What, what does that mean? Well, Jesus has won the victory over death. He has been raised from the dead and has restored humanity to life. God took upon himself our flesh and blood, joined himself to our humanity, that he might join us to himself, that we might be his forever. And by his Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out upon us, he has united us to himself so that we might pass from death to life through our union with him. 
That is the life, the light, the message of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, have mercy on us. Because too often we forget. Too often we wander and stray. We thank you that that you do hear. Sometimes it feels like it takes a long time, but we thank you that you hear, that you promise that you will not leave us or forsake us. And so we praise you because you have dealt bountifully with us. You have shown your great steadfast love and we rejoice in your salvation because you have won the victory in Jesus. Have mercy on us for Jesus' sake. Amen.